Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for our time tonight to be here and to open your word together. What a privilege and responsibility it is for us as your people. And so, of course, we come to you as needy people, knowing that we need you, need you for our understanding. We need you for our life. We need you for our continued obedience. The Lord, attend to us as we look into your word. Help us to understand these things that we might be children that reflect exactly what you would have us reflect in our lives to your glory, to the honor of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we come once again to our study of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. We are quickly coming to a close uh, of this study. And we find ourselves here in John chapter 20 in the final verses. I was thinking about this the other day as I was preparing for our time tonight. It's really somewhat of a sad day uh, because we have been together for so long on this journey through this gospel. I was perusing through my computer and looking at how long we have been studying this book, and I was going through the records of my notes and those kinds of things this week, and what I could find out was that we started our study of this book in May of 2013. May of 2013. Of course, we do it in the evening services, so that doesn't mean every Sunday we're teaching through that and for various things. So that's been seven years, nearly seven years we have been returning to the truth of John's gospel. And for myself, really, it's even longer than that because I began the study of the Gospel of John back in 2001 when I was in Ohio pastoring there. So nearly 20 years for me. And so coming to its end is somewhat of a bittersweet time. I'm sure bittersweet for all of you as well because we have seen so much as we have looked at all of these chapters that John has given us together. And tonight, I guess I just want to think again about why John has given us this gospel. Why is it here? And we have referred to it many, many times as we have been going throughout our study. And in chapter 20, we have reached the actual verses that we have referred to throughout. Notice chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says, many other signs, therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. When you think about it, there are any number of reasons why someone might write a book. Some are trying to maintain their job. That's why they write. You can think of university professors and those at colleges who are professors. They either publish, as the old saying goes, or they perish. If you're not publishing as a professor, then you will probably lose your job. 
Some others write because they have been in positions of influence or positions in which they have been around scenarios that they believe need to be heard and need to be exposed, and so they write a book about it. We've seen that even in our own history of recent, when someone has left a government position, they go on to publish some book on expose on whatever their time was in that office. And others just write because they're trying to build their own little kingdom of followers. They desire to be known, and so they begin to publish anything and everything that they say. If that is something that obviously is important to be heard. Sadly, today, much of evangelicalism and much of the writing going on in evangelicalism is filled with that kind of author. Somebody who just thinks they have something to say, something that needs to be heard, and so they write some book and they self-publish it and they put it on Amazon and people start to buy it and their name gets out there and because of that they think they're somebody. Of course, you and I could debate about the importance of any of that kind of writing. Um, Whether there is value in it or not, we could debate that, but there are books that come along whose value is immediately recognized. And each one of us, if Randy had asked us that question, name one book that has been of value to you in your life, you would probably point to a classic author, someone who you admire, someone who you return to often to their writings. And yet, even when you think about all of those, none of those authors and none of those books compare with the value of the greatest book of all the one that you have right there on your lap, the one that's right here on this pulpit, the Bible. It's the most popular book ever written. No book has ever surpassed its sale numbers across the globe. No book has ever had more copies published than the Bible itself. And just one part of the Bible, just one part, of the Bible is the book that we've spent nearly seven years studying. Why did John write it? Well, he tells us. It's right here explicitly in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. There are a whole lot of things that John could have said in this book. There are a whole lot of things that John could have written about. There are any number of miracles and events that he could have highlighted throughout this gospel. But the things that he did write are here for a specific purpose so that they might enlist a twofold impact upon those who read them. The first impact is that those who read what is said might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You see that there in verse 31. That's the first impact, right? These are written. That which is in this book, this is written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The second impact is a consequence of that first one. 
that the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that they would have eternal life in His name. And that very purpose is in one sense what makes John so different than any other author, even the most popular authors of our day. You say, why? Because most books are written to honor the author of the book. Most books are written so that people say, oh, you're the author of such and such a book. They are written to highlight in some way the one who wrote it. But that's not John. John writes so that the subject of his book, so that the subject of this book might increase and he might decrease, just as John the Baptist said, as we saw early in the Gospel of John. In other words, every part of this gospel, each and every person that is mentioned, every detail that is here is subordinated to the one great purpose, that we should believe that Jesus is the Christ. And right here in John's very statement, right here, there is a small but important example for us who already believe. There's an example here for us who are already believers, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. You say, what is that? It is the example of John himself that John has done here in his book pointing us to Christ. That very example ought to be the same goal for our life. We have to make every effort to ensure that our lives highlight Christ rather than diminish Christ. Whether we are in the workplace, talking with our co-workers and living in the workplace with them so that we are interacting with them on a regular basis, whatever we we do there, we must see Christ increase and us decrease. Whenever we are with our family and our friends and those who are acquaintances with us in gatherings, we are to have a life in which it is like John, as if we were writing a book where Christ is highlighted and we are diminished. And whatever aspect of life we are in, we are to follow this very example. Like John, we don't want anything, anything about our own life that would detract from others seeing Christ. In fact, we have noted throughout our study of the Gospel of John that John in such a way does this that he doesn't even mention his own name. He is simply the disciple whom Jesus loved. John wants to simply fade into the background. He simply wants to be eclipsed by the reality of who Jesus Christ is because John wants no accolades. John wants no patting on the back. John wants to sign no autographs for his book. John just wants us to see Christ. And so here is how John's words 
need to be heard. It says, though John were saying to each and every one of us who has spent these seven years walking with John, listen, listen, you have been reading and you have been studying this account, these words that I have written, you have been doing it for years now, and now you are coming to the end. And John is asking us, have you embraced this purpose? Have you embraced this purpose for which these words are here? Could it be that possibly, could it be infathomably and possibly, after listening to all that you have heard over the past seven years, all the study that you have done, all the reading and all the viewing and all the hearing of what has taken place that we have failed to believe? Could it be? And we have missed the purpose for which all of this has been told to us. John says in verse 30, many other signs, therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. Jesus did many, many things. In fact, if you look at the end of the next chapter, the final verse of this gospel says that Jesus did so many things that if they were written in detail, John says, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that they would be written in. Jesus did so many things. So many things. But these have been written so that we would believe. Have you ever thought about this book like that? I mean, this is another testimony to the reality of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the writers of the Scripture. Because there's no way in John's humanity, in John himself, there's no way that John could have, could have known all of the things that Jesus did all of the things which he did, because John says he did many, many other things. There's no way that John could have known all of that and then chosen just a few to write about. Certainly the Holy Spirit was guiding him all the way. Certainly he was inspired by the Spirit of God to put the very things that we have here in this book for the very purpose for which it has been written. Because he could have written about any number of things but these have been written so that we might believe. Even though this book is filled with rich theological truths, even though this book is filled with aspects and, and rich uh, pictures and metaphors and all of this stuff that we, that we find here in the Gospel of John, in the end... It is nothing more than a series of testimonies about the validity of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And John puts this in a very remarkable way as he records it for us throughout the gospel. And I want to just kind of do a quick survey tonight for us. 
as we think about this. Because John puts seven specific miracles of Jesus Christ throughout this gospel. Seven specific miracles. Go back to John chapter 2 for a moment. John chapter 2. Because in John chapter 2, Jesus turns the water into wine at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. Up to that point in his life, up to the point in which now he's in his 30s, up to that point in his life, he'd never done a miracle. Don't, don't believe the little books and the little trivial things that are said about Jesus as a boy and, and reviving sparrows and all this other kind of folklore that's out there. Up to this point, Jesus had never done a miracle. This is the first one, and it's a creative miracle. And of course, from our previous study, nearly seven years ago, we know the story, right? Verse 11 says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So here Jesus begins his ministry, and it's the first miracle he puts on display, and it's a creative miracle. He turns the water into wine, something that had never been done. It astounded those at the wedding. And his disciples believed in him. We can see the whole thing. He did the miracle. It was public. It revealed his glory. Verse 11 says, clearly showed the reality of who he is, that he is, in fact, God incarnate. Here is God in person. And his disciples believed in him. You see, John, right out of the gate, this is the whole purpose that John desires. John desires that, that he would put this down. John, John specifically, being led by the Spirit, puts this down here right at the beginning so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And we're going to see that all of these accounts, all of these things that we're going to walk through, even, even in this cursory fashion tonight, all of these accounts are giving so that we might see the glory of Jesus. So that we might see Him on display. So that we might see who He is. That He is Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So that we might believe in Him. Just as the disciples. Chapter 2 is the first miracle. You don't have to go very far. Go over to chapter 4. John chapter 4 is the place of the second miracle. Of course, prior to that, he talks with the religious leaders, particularly Nicodemus, John chapter 3. But here in chapter 4, you find the second miracle. You You don't get to it until the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 46, where there is this healing of this royal official's son. Verse 46 says, he came therefore again to Cana of Galilee. Here's where he did the first miracle in John chapter 2. He has, hence since that miracle, proceeded south to Jerusalem, had this interaction with the Pharisees, with Nicodemus. He has cast out the people from the temple 
In fact, in John chapter 2, verse 13, he casts out them. He, he says, my father's house is in a place for this kind of selling and profiteering. And you come to John chapter 4, and here's Jesus again up north in Cana of Galilee. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him to come down and heal his son because his son's at the point of death. Notice what Jesus says. These are people from Cana of Galilee. Notice what Jesus says in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. It's a a sense of which there's a rebuke there. You've seen enough almost. You've already seen. You, You already know who I am. This is already clear to you. And here we are again. And unless you see a sign, you won't believe. royal official would have none of that, said to Jesus, Sir, just come down before my child dies. Almost, I I don't know what else to do. Just come down. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? This is the same place, as I've said, where Jesus had done the first miracle. That should be enough. Jesus shouldn't have to do any more. That should be enough. But they wanted more. And so Jesus, out of his mercy, out of his grace, heals the son. He heals him. Down in verse 54, down in verse 54, we read this. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. It's the second sign, but notice what happened before John says that. So the father knew after his son was healed, the fever had left him. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed and his whole household. Once again, the purpose of John is right here before us. This is here so that we might believe. We're seeing that Jesus is doing this, and people are believing, and Jesus is healing, and these people are believing. John chapter 5, we get another miracle. Chapter 5 is the healing of the lame man at the pools of Bethsaida. Again, we're familiar with the story. We remember as we walk through this, the man had been there for 38 years. He was paralyzed in his legs. There was a superstition around the pools at Bethsaida that if you got into the water when the water was stirring, that you were healed from that. You, were, you would be healed from your disease. 
In fact, the superstition was such that this was this stirring happened by an angel of the Lord. You notice that in verse 4. The angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Remember, Satan prowls around as an angel of light. I think these were demons masquerading as those from God. And here's this man. He had tried and tried to get there first. But always in his attempts, he was always beaten by somebody else. No avail. 38 years, he's sitting there begging. He had no one to help him get in the water. And Jesus comes along and he heals him instantaneously. Jesus saw him lying there, verse 6. He knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered, sir, I don't have anyone to put me into the pool of water when it's stirred up. While I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said, arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well, took up his pallet and began to walk. Immediately. And of course, it's a little later that Jesus finds this man again and talks to him about what took place. It's an incredible miracle. It's a miracle of complete restoration of someone who has had his legs paralyzed for decades. It's not, oh, listen, over time you will get well. It's an immediate, instantaneous, full, complete restoration. And then when you get to chapter 6, come to the fourth miracle. Fourth miracle. Jesus has power over nature. Chapter 2, he creates wine out of plain water. He has the power to heal. Both of those are creative miracles. Jesus just making things ex nihilo in that sense. From nothing. We've seen that he has the capability to heal the nobleman's son instantaneously. The son is about to die. Jesus heals him instantaneously. And now here in chapter 6, Jesus creates food, enough to feed nearly 20,000 people. It's an amazing account. We, we, don't, we really don't have time to go through it all beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, but it's an amazing account. We know it well. We teach it to our kids. And all Jesus had to begin with was what verse 9 says. There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these? For so many people. Two fish. Five small loaves. More like what we might call crackers. Pieces of hard bread, a biscuit. But he feeds up to 20,000 people. He not only feeds them, he gives them all they can possibly eat and has 12 baskets left over. And then, and then if that's not enough, Jesus walks on the water, calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee, which were common. All of this, absolutely amazing. 
And of course, we know the rest of the story. The next morning, the people come over who had been fed the night before. They come over to Capernaum where Jesus is. They find Jesus. They found him, verse 25, on the other side of the sea. They say to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate and you were filled. Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. And of course, Jesus has this dialogue with them. They say to him, what work do you do that we know you're God? And Jesus says to them, this is the work of God. What? That you believe. You don't need any more signs. You don't need any me to do anything else. You just need to believe in whom he sent. You need to believe me. And this is what they say to him. Then what sign do you do? What then do you do for a sign that we might see and believe you? What work do you perform? Because after all, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. The Bible says, the Old Testament says, the scriptures say that he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said, for the bread of God, verse 33, is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Why? Because all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. You see, you've seen me. You've seen what I've done. You know who I am. What you need to do is believe. You need to believe. Of course, the dialogue goes on, and they finally want nothing to do with Jesus. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They'd seen Jesus. They'd seen what he did. He wasn't giving them their fleshly satisfactions. And so they said, we want nothing to do with you. And so Jesus says to the 12, you don't want to go all away also, do you? And Simon Peter gives the answer, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed. We've believed. We've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're the very one you're showing yourself to be. We believe it. You have the words of life. So right always, already from the very beginning, from chapter 2, John has been showing these miracles that Jesus has the power to create. He has power over sickness. He has 
power over coming death and approaching death, power over nature. And then you get to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the next miracle. Jesus sees a man blind from birth. Of course, the Pharisees are wanting to kill him in the verse before that because he had told them exactly who he is. That he is God. They know exactly what he means. They want to kill him, and Jesus passes by and sees a man who's been blind from birth. And of course, we know the story. It's one of our favorites. A man who has never seen with his eyes has them instantaneously opened by Christ. And it confounds the religious leaders of the day. In fact, they display the very attitude towards Jesus that this man and that John desires none of his readers to have. They display the very opposite of the purpose of John writing this. They display a unbelief, an unbelief. They are, as we call it, willful unbelievers. Willful unbelievers. Remember when we were studying this that we looked at the anatomy of willful unbelief. Beginning in verse 13, the Pharisees brought the one who was formerly blind. He had been healed already. Now he can see. They, they bring him. They want to know from him. It's the Sabbath on the day which Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And again, the Pharisees are asking him, how He received his sight. And he says to them, He applied clay to my eyes. I washed and I see. The Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God. Why? Because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others were saying, How can this man who is a sinner perform such signs? There was division among them. This is the first step of willful unbelief. Willful unbelief writes its own rules. Willful unbelief says, this is how it must be. This is the only way that someone's saved. You must follow these rules. There's no way that this one could do this. Why? Because he isn't keeping the man-made rules. Not keeping the Sabbath. No way. If he's a Sabbath breaker, then therefore he's a sinner. And if he's a sinner, how could he do these things? And so what do they do? They do the very next thing that willful unbelief always does. It requests more proof. Verse 17, they said, therefore, to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him. You see, they're willfully unbelieving. They don't believe what he's telling them, that he had been blind, that he received sight. So now they're doubting the very reality of his very life, that he was blind. He had just been a deceiver his whole life, apparently. And they believe that until they called the parents, the very one who had received sight, and they questioned them, saying, is, your, is this your son? 
who was saying he was born blind. How does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know this is our son, and he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age. He can speak for himself. Why did they say that? Because they're afraid of the Jews, because the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, that is Jesus, to be the Christ, they'd be put out of the synagogue. And so his parents said, he's of age, ask him. This is what willful belief always does. Ask for endless proof. Then, of course, we learn that willful unbelief always rejects the obvious, always rejects the obvious, notice verse 24. Second time they called the man who had been blind, and he said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Why? Because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. That's what's still on their mind. We know he's a sinner. Give glory to God. And he therefore answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, whereas I was blind, now I see. And he said, Therefore, to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They want more proof. They need endless proof. He didn't do it our way. That's not how someone gets into the kingdom. So they reject the obvious. They reject the obvious. And then what do they do after that? People who willfully unbelieve, they just start to insult the person. Notice verse 27 to 34. He answered them, I told you already, You didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become disciples of his also, do you? And they reviled him. They insulted him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God has spoken to Moses, but as of this man, we don't know where he's even from. The man answered and said, well, here's an amazing thing that you don't know where he's from. And yet he opens my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears Him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. This had never been done. Ever. They're just resulting to insult Him If this man were from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sin and you're teaching us. What do they do? Throw him out. Get rid of you. We want nothing to do with you. That's what willful unbelief always does. It always removes the truth. So what does Jesus do after they had put him out, Jesus finds him, verse 35, and says, do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? Jesus said, you have both seen him, and he is the one talking with you. I am he. And what does it say? He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So up to this point, Jesus has done five specific miracles, all intended to reveal who he is. John has included them. John has put them here specifically so that we might believe. 
The next one's over in chapter 11. Chapter 11, of course, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We know the story. Lazarus has been dead several days. His body is already in the proper, in, in the position of decomposing. And yet Jesus raises him from the dead. Jesus comes. He waits two days because he loved them, it says in verse 5. Jesus said, this sickness isn't unto death, verse 4, but for the glory of God that the Son of Man may be glorified by the, the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus was ensuring that no one could doubt the reality of the death of Lazarus. And so Jesus goes. And of course, the disciples therefore say to him, Lord, if he has just fallen asleep, he'll recover because Jesus had said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him. If he's fallen asleep, he'll wake. He'll get better. Now, Jesus had spoken about his death. They thought he was speaking about literal sleep. And Jesus says to them plainly, listen, guys, he's dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. So that you might what? Believe. So that you might believe. Let us go. Of course, Thomas there says, let's go. uh, That we might die with him. Thomas is clueless. He's not getting what's going on. Jesus, of course, comes, finds the tomb already four days. Lazarus has been there. About two miles away from Jerusalem. Mary and Martha have had all these band of people with them, and Martha comes out to Jesus when to meet him. Mary's still sitting in the house, and Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you just be, had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And even now, I, I know, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. There's a sense in which she doesn't think he's God. There's a sense in which she just thinks he's a prophet of God. If you just ask God, like the Old Testament prophet, you just ask God, he'll, he'll do it for you. And Jesus said, your brother's going to rise again, Martha. Martha says, yeah, I, I know. I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. He who what? Believes. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? So what did she say? Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. He who comes into the world. The very thing John wants us to believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Martha says, I I believe it. I believe it. So Jesus has the power over death. Jesus has the power over blindness. Jesus has the power over nature. He has the power over sickness and debilitating disease. He has the power to create. 
All of these are undeniable evidence that He is the Messiah, the Son of God. We're just halfway through the book, and John has already given us six miracles to prove His very purpose. And of course, we know from John chapter 12, all the way through to the final chapters, Jesus is with his disciples telling them about what is to come. And then you get to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is the final miracle. Resurrection. It's the fulfillment, really, of what Jesus had said back in John chapter 2 and verse 18. After he had emptied the temple prior to the, the miracle in Cana, or, or Jesus says to the Jews, the Jews are saying to Jesus, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? What things? Clearing the temple. What, what authority do you have to kick us out of here, to kick these money changers out and these people who are selling the animals for sacrifice? What, what authority do you have to do that? They want some kind of validation for his actions. What does he say? John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days it'll rise again. And what do the Pharisees, they don't believe that at all. They don't believe that at all. Here's what they say. It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? John goes on to say, he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture. And the word which Jesus had spoken. They believed. What sign do you show us? Jesus says, I'll give you a sign, the resurrection. That's the sign that you'll see. And in John chapter 20, we get the miracle right here before us. We looked at it in detail. And folks, here's the point. Here's the point. Jesus had the power himself to rise from the dead and to conquer death. Jesus had the power to rise from the dead and to conquer death. The, 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 those are the miracles. Those are the miracles. And John often calls them a sign. They're signs. Why? Because miracles point to something. Miracles point to something. That's what a sign is. That's what a sign does. A, a sign is a directional aid. That's all it is. It points us to the goal. It points us to, the, to, to what is needed to be done. That's what the miracles of Jesus are doing. They're pointing us to the goal. The goal is that we believe in Him. That's why John says, I've written this gospel here. Here are the miracles so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. 
John says, this book isn't about me. It's not about seeing me. It's not about highlighting me. It's about seeing the glory of God in the miracles of Jesus Christ that you might believe that he is, in fact, who he said he is, the Christ. And as we have seen all along from John chapter 2, John chapter 4, John chapter 5, John chapter 6, John chapter 9, John chapter 11, John chapter 20, as we see all along through the whole thing, there are those who believe savingly, And there are those who look at the signs and refuse to believe. They refuse to believe. In spite of the fact that Jesus, in John chapter 8 and verse 24, said these things. After saying, I'm the light of the world, Pharisees are having a hard time with that. Verse 23 of chapter 8, he's saying to them, you are from below, I'm from above, you are of this world, I'm not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. This is what separates all of us. Why can Jesus say that? Why can Jesus say that? Because of the reality of who he is. Because he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He alone is the reality that no one comes to the Father but by Christ. There is no other way. The Bible clearly declares the only way. There is no other way. The only way is to believe. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. In Him is eternal life. In Him only is eternal life. Every other religion. Every other way is a product of the father of lies, Satan himself. I guess the the best place to close our time tonight is just by returning to a passage, ironically, that Tim gave us in Hebrews chapter 3. We were talking about the one another's. Beginning in verse 12, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Falling away from the living God. We don't want that. That's, that's, that's why we've, we've studied the Gospel of John. That's why we open the Word of God. That's why we exhort and, and implore and, and, and plead that you would believe. Just like John has pleaded with us for seven years, believe. Here's the miracles, believe. And here is the writer of Hebrews saying to those who had played the game, saying to those who had lived in a life of ritualistic works, kinds of religion. Listen, we're concerned that if any one of you, there should be this unbelieving heart, 
that turns away from the living God. We want to encourage you today. Today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because we become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. What's the beginning of our assurance? Jesus Christ. We must have Christ. We must never turn our back on Christ. We cannot be like the history of Israel. A writer of Hebrews recalling the history It isn't good enough to say you know God, to say you're following God when you're not following God at all. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Who provoked Him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt by Moses? And with whom was He angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. 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 The only way to enter the rest, the only way to enter into the kingdom of God is through belief. And so John is saying to us at the end of chapter 20, listen, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't doubt. Just believe and live. Believe and live. You have 25 verses to go. 25 verses to go. Maybe it'll be another seven years. Or maybe we'll just go back to chapter one because we don't know what we're missing. Either way, it'll be a blessing to us. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, the one in whom you have called us to believe. You've shown us plenty of evidence. Thank you for the grace that you have extended to us in the gospel. You are a gracious God, a God of hope, a God who cares. And so we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have been presented eternal life. The opportunity to be in your presence, to have our sins fully forgiven. Be in fellowship with you everlastingly. Never to grow old, never to get weary of worship, but to always be worshiping you because of Christ. What a privilege. What an honor. What an unfathomable joy that is. And so, Lord, we would ask that you impress these things upon our heart and our minds. Allow us to share them with others so that you would be honored and glorified in it all, we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen.